You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I want to begin this morning by asking you to turn in your Bibles to um, the passage that Brett just read for us. Um, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, but I want you also to take a look at chapter 3, verse 14, because interestingly, they start off identically. They're exactly the same in how Paul begins them. First, uh, he says this in verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, then over to verse 14, again, we see him saying, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, I think that what Paul was going to do in verse 1 was say something like this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, bow my knees before the Father. See, he's just finished talking about the glory of the church. The passage that Braden spoke on last week was all about how the fact that we are the household of God. We are fellow citizens with God's people. We are now this new mobile holy temple that God's spirit dwells in. And Paul is pretty excited about who the church is and who we are together in Christ. And he wants to take a moment and pray for us, pray for the Ephesian church But what happens is there's something that deflects his thinking, something that knocks him off his train of thought. One little word actually is used by the Holy Spirit under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to cause Paul to sort of do this 13-verse parenthesis that we would never ever have had had Paul not used that one little word, and that little word is Gentiles. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And what happened is when Paul thought about the fact that God's new covenant family, God's new church, the new Israel of God was made up of Jews and Gentiles together in one magnificent, glorious family, a new temple a new priesthood, etc. He is just overwhelmed again with the mystery and the glory of this message. And so he is sort of deflected in his thinking into a sort of 13-verse parenthesis that gives us a lot of information about him and also helps us understand what the mystery of Christ is a little bit better. Now, he's already referred to the mystery of Christ over in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And this is what he said making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and and things on earth. So he's hinted at what this mystery is, but he hasn't given us sort of a fully orbed, sort of fully detailed explanation of what the mystery is. But that's what we get in this passage of scripture. And in verse six, he describes it and gives us the answer to what the mystery is, what this thing is that had been kept secret for centuries and was now being revealed through Christ to his apostles and to those prophets who were preaching the New Testament gospel. And here it is. The mystery is this. The mystery is, verse 6, that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What he is saying is that 
The mystery is this, that God through Christ has morphed Israel. God through Christ has transformed his covenant people from being just Jewish to now Jewish and Gentile together in this new family that we call the church. And before Jesus, before the resurrection, this was absolutely unthinkable and totally inconceivable. Even to the most out-of-the-box thinker, this was unheard of. It just would not have dawned on anybody that what God was going to do is produce a new iteration of Israel that included Jews and Gentiles together in this new covenant people of God. Nobody could ever, ever, ever have imagined that God was going to destroy that beautiful temple that was sitting in Jerusalem and replace it with a flesh and blood temple made up of living stones filled by his Holy Spirit. Nobody could ever have imagined that one day through Christ there was coming a circumcision that wasn't physical but was spiritual done in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Nobody could ever have understood that we would be a priesthood of believers. Nobody could ever have imagined a better sacrifice than the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. Nobody could have imagined that the Son of God himself would come and spill his precious blood in order to purchase us for God. No one could have imagined it. It was a mystery. But... It was revealed to the Apostle Paul and to the other apostles and to the preachers who were preaching the New Testament message. And this is what Paul is talking about in this passage of Scripture. Sometimes I feel sorry for the Apostle Paul. Here he is. He's a good Jew. And he's trying to serve God as he understood it to be. And he's on his way to Damascus trying to stamp out this this heresy, this Christian religion that has started that is a threat to the integrity of what he understands Israel and and Judaism to be. And he's on the road to Damascus and all of a sudden this bright light shines and he is overwhelmed to realize that he is meeting Jesus. And in that moment, the foundation of his life was shattered The rug was pulled completely out from underneath the Apostle Paul as he realized in that flash of light that everything that his life had previously been built on was wrong and that God was doing a new thing in the world through Christ's death, resurrection, and his church. When he realized that Gentiles were now part of the people of God, His mind was blown. So when Paul stops, when he says the word Gentiles in verse 1, he is arrested again by this amazing truth. He is captured again by the fact that God did this thing that for so many centuries was a secret, mysterious, unknown thing but is now being revealed in the gospel. The miracle of the church, the miracle of us, never got old for the Apostle Paul. It was always fresh and amazing and awesome as he thought about what God has has done. 
So the unsearchable riches of God, as he calls them in this passage of Scripture, the manifold wisdom of God, caused him to launch out into this digression, this kind of autobiographical digression, where he speaks about how this understanding of the church, the mystery of God, has sort of captured and changed his life. In the section of the book, he speaks about how understanding this mystery has radically and wonderfully transformed him. Think about who he was. He was a man who hated the church, and now he's a man who loves the church. He was a man who went from killing Christians to a man who went to being willing to die for Christians, his brothers and his sisters, from a persecutor of the church to a servant of the church, from a man who was willing to destroy the church to a man who was planting and nurturing and tending to fledgling little churches and watching them grow all over the world for the honor and the glory of Christ. You see, when Paul understood the mystery of Christ, when he understood what God was doing in the church, when he understood that the church was God's agenda, when he understood what he wrote in chapter 5, that Jesus came and laid his life down for the church, suddenly the mystery of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, became his passion. It became his life's work. He was willing to give himself entirely for the church because he understood the mystery. He understood what God had done. He understood the miracle that the church was. The church never got old for the apostle. When Paul understood Ephesians 3, 6, that God had taken Gentiles and incorporated them into Israel, and had transformed the people of God into this amazing new thing that we are today. His values, his priorities, his passions, his life purpose, everything changed. And the same same should happen to us. The same thing should happen to us. Oftentimes it doesn't. Sadly, many of us have a very cavalier attitude about the church. We're really excited about the fact that God saved me, but not so excited about the fact that God saved me for the church, to put me in a church, to weave me together into the fabric of a local body of believers. Because that's sometimes difficult. It's sometimes challenging. We're great with Jesus and me are just real good. But Jesus and the church, me and the church, that's, that's another challenge. That's another issue altogether. The church was Paul's passion in life, preaching the gospel and loving the church. And it's got to be our passion as well. And it will be when we understand the mystery, when we understand what God has done and is doing in and through us. So I want to say this as gently as I can, but if you want to calibrate, if you want to understand the depth of your love, the depth of your relationship with Jesus Look at your relationship to his church because one is reflected in the other. One is reflected in the other. People who love Jesus are saved. People who say that they love Jesus and don't love his church don't love Christ the way that they should. A deep, genuine, relational intimacy and passion for Jesus will produce a love and a commitment to the church, to his body. It can't be otherwise. Don't don't tell me that you love your wife and you have no interest in being with her. 
right? Don't, don't tell me that you love your wife and she says, well, let's go for a walk, honey, and you say, I, I'm, I'm too busy, I got something else to do. Like, if, if, you love, if you love the person, you're gonna love their body. There's, they're being together. Sometimes I wonder if our apathy towards the church is because we don't really see, we've never really understood what Paul saw and understood in that moment when God opened his eyes to the mystery of Christ. I wonder if the mystery of Christ is still something of a mystery for us. And because of that, we, we, we're able to say, yes, I love Jesus, but the church, I'm not crazy about it. My prayer is that as we go through this passage of scripture, we will better understand the mystery of Christ. We'll appreciate it more. And as a consequence of that, we will love the church more. We will serve her more. We will protect her more. We will nurture her more. Because that's what God has called us to do. So what did Paul understand of this mystery? What did Christ accomplish in his life when Paul grasped the mystery that God had kept secret for centuries, for ages, and had revealed in the person, the work of Christ, and in the gospel. There are five things very quickly I want to go through. The first thing is this. He became a servant of the church. Look at, look at verse, I'll read from verse 1 again through verse 2. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, for you. So when Paul speaks about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to him, he's starting way back at his conversion. God began to pour out, to steward his grace into the life of the apostle Paul the moment he met him on the road to Damascus, and he began to transform that man at that time. As he was going to Damascus that day, he had, he had no love for Christ. He hated Christ. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of the church. He had participated in the murder of Stephen. He hated the gospel. He hated Christ. He hated Christians. And suddenly he met Jesus and his world was transformed. Everything was radically turned upside down and he was changed. Even when he was blind, at somebody's home, one of the Christians' homes in Damascus, God goes to Ananias and says to him, Ananias, I want you to go to the Apostle Paul, and I want you to touch him, I want you to give him back his sight. And then he says this, to, God says this to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen servant of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings. You see, even before Paul had his sight back, even before he had begun to really understand the theology, what God has, was doing in history through the church, even before he understood much about who Jesus was, other than the fact that he was Lord, Ananias went to him and said, your job is to go and get Gentiles and bring them into the kingdom of God. Now that would have been mind-blowing for the apostle Paul. The kingdom of God is a Jewish kingdom. It is ethnically defined. It is for the people who are set apart, the called out ones. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus saves him, and now he is being called to go and bring Gentiles, sinners, the dogs, the unclean ones, into the church. And together, they would be the new covenant people of God. 
And from that moment on, God's grace was poured into his life. God called him to preach. God taught him theology. God showed him from the Old Testament how it was always God's plan to incorporate Gentiles. It was never seen. It was never understand, understood, but it was there. And he began, began by God's grace to become a preacher and a church planter. And he served the church. And look at how he describes it. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. You see, that's, that underpinned Paul's theology of the church. I have been given by God, I've been given grace by God for you. To bless you, to teach you, to love you, to encourage you, to edify you, and to build you up, and to shape you, and to correct you, and to help you, and to love you. Paul understood that God had poured his grace into him that he might be a conduit of that grace to the church. He was given, grace was given to me for you. And that's exactly the same thing for us. God's grace was poured into our lives that day when he regenerated us. He quickened us. He brought, him, brought us to himself. He did a miracle that transformed us and made us into new creatures in Christ. Why? For this body. Not just to get you to heaven. Not just so that you could have your best life now. Not just so that you could have a relationship with God, although those are all, all important things. God saved you for the person you're sitting beside. God saved you for the people in this room. God has woven you into the fabric of this church as an integral part of this body for us. Peter uses the illustration. He says, we are all living stones in this new mobile temple that God has created. This, this thing called a church, which was a mystery before, but is now being revealed. Every single one of you is an integral part of this church. This church is not whole. It is not complete unless you are taking your place in the wall. God has gifted you, God has called you, God has enabled you, God has filled you with his spirit. God has given you all that you need to pour your life into us for our blessing and our edification and our encouragement. And unless we are committed to that, we will never be all that God has called us to be. God, God wants us to be for each other. That's the whole thing. He's poured his grace into us. He saved me for you. He saved you for me. Not all of us do the same thing. Not all of us have the same gifts. Not all of us have the same abilities, but we all have the same purpose, and that is that we might serve the body of Christ. And when we understand who the body of Christ is, what the body of Christ is, that we are this new mobile temple that God has unleashed on the world, that we have a far better blood sacrifice, a far better high priest, that we are priests together, serving God together. When we understand the miracle of the church, we should be inspired to love this thing called the church, to lay our lives down for the church as Christ laid down his life for the church. When you understand that God has taken people from all walks of life all ethnic, socioeconomic, cultural, linguistic backgrounds and welded us remarkably and surprisingly together in love. 
and that it is through the ministry of this church, through the preaching of the gospel, and as we love one another, the world is going to see that Jesus is Messiah. Man, it just, it, it welds our heart to the church. It should at least in the ministry of the body that Jesus has made us a part of. We're called to serve. But secondly, we're called to be committed to the mystery. Paul was committed to the mystery. And what was this mysterious thing? Well, it was the most improbable, unlikely, revolutionary thing that the first century could possibly have imagined, that Jew and Gentile would be together in a loving unity Personally, I would suggest that one of the greatest apologists, or greatest apologies, greatest arguments for the validity of the resurrection is the ancient church. Jew and Gentile worshiping, loving, living, serving, blessing each other together in the body of Christ was an absolutely mind-blowing thing for the first century Roman world because you had Jews and you had Gentiles. Jews were so bigoted and hostile to the Gentiles, believed that they were so defiling that to walk into the home of a Gentile was an obscenity. They would build high walls around their homes so they didn't have to look at Gentiles and be defiled by them. They believed that dogs were unclean animals. They believed that Gentiles were equally unclean, that to touch a Gentile would defile you. There was a deep-seated animosity learned from childhood. And the Gentiles looked at the Jews with contempt. And there, the resurrection of Jesus Christ happens around 30 AD. By the late 30s, early 40s, there are these churches springing up all over the place. And as Jew and Gentile together, in the Ephesian church, mostly Gentiles, some Jews, read the story in Acts 19, But there they are, loving each other. The animosity and the hatred and the bitterness and all those things that kept them apart is gone. That's that's the mystery. God bringing people together miraculously in love. And they are grafted into the body of Christ. Now how does that happen? Look at at verse 6 with me again to see how it happens. The mystery isn't the gospel. It isn't the message of Christianity. The mystery is the church. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. How? Through the gospel. The mystery is accomplished. The mystery is realized as a consequence of the preaching of the gospel of peace. There's nothing else on our planet that can bring people as diverse as these two groups were together but the gospel of peace. You think the the, the gulf between Palestinian and Israel right now, Israelis, is big? That's nothing compared to the animosity and the hatred that existed between these two groups in the first century. And it was the gospel, the gospel of peace that bridged that huge gulf between these two groups and brought them together in loving community scattered all over the ancient Mediterranean world. And the same thing should happen to us. When we grasp the gospel of peace, when we get the gospel, the gospel does something to us as it did in the first century. 
It causes us to love one another. It causes us to serve one another. It causes us to put down our weapons. It, 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 as we said a couple of weeks ago, it kills the hostility and allows us to live in love. Is there conflict? Sure, there's conflict. You can't have a marriage without conflict. But it allows us to live in love and work through conflict to resolution. And I've spoken about this over the last couple of weeks, so I'm, I'm not going to belabor this point, but I want to say this. If God was able to bring Jew and Gentile together almost instantaneously in a moment of time in the ancient world after the resurrection, think about it, Jews and Samaritans worshiping together, Gentiles and Jews worshiping together, the gospel of peace doing its thing in, in just like a heartbeat of time in the ancient world after the resurrection. If God can do that through the gospel, I want to tell you there's nothing that should keep us apart in our marriages, in our church, in our families. Nothing should keep us apart because the gospel can heal it all. The gospel can bridge any gulf. I don't care what it is. Any relational division between two Christians can and should always be surmounted by the gospel. It's the gospel that does this. So I want to say this. If you can't love the people of the church into which God has placed you, it's, it's very likely that you have never really ever experientially been impacted by the gospel. Relationships are experiential things. The gospel is an experiential thing, right? God doesn't save our brain by teaching us theology. He saves us. He saves our souls. He saves our spirit by interacting with us on the foundation of the gospel. The being saved is an experiential, experimental kind of thing. It's dynamic. It's emotional. It's impactful. That relationship should have the same consequence in every other relationship of our lives. And the problem is sometimes is that that transaction between Jesus and me in the gospel is very cerebral, very intellectual, and very unemotional. And as a consequence, we operate in a relationship that is very cerebral and relational, and we don't do well, uh, cerebral and intellectual, and we don't do well relationally as a consequence. Let me just take you to a passage of scripture that I think explains us a little bit. One of the most, what's the biggest airplane in the world? A 747, right? Very, not the biggest, but it's a big airplane. I want to take you to a big, big, big verse. Luke 7.47. Don't ever forget this verse because it's a powerful verse. Luke 7.47 is the story. Luke 7 is the story about Jesus being invited to the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And Simon wants to have a meal with Jesus, so Jesus goes to this man's house. And he is reclining, having a meal with Simon. And without really noticing it, this woman comes in, and she's not an invited guest. She is an unclean woman. The assumption is that she is probably a prostitute, a woman that has, has tons of sin on her conscience. She comes in, and she anoints Jesus' feet with perfume, and she begins to weep, and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And she is there blessing Jesus, pouring these tears down her face as she ministers to the Lord. And then Simon looks at this and says to himself, 
well, this guy can't be a prophet because if he was a prophet, he would know just how unclean and how dirty and how sinful this woman is who is touching him. And then Jesus, knowing that, says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher, verse 41. Jesus says this, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? He canceled the debt of both. There's the gospel. Jesus cancels our debt, right? That's, that's, the, that's the essence of the gospel. Which of them will love him more, Jesus asked. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, so here's the picture. This woman is weeping at the feet of Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair, broken at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus is looking at the woman, talking to Simon. And he says this, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now here's the verse, 747. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loves much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. You see, when you go to the gospel with an unemotional, when you go to the cross with an unemotional, intellectual, cerebral understanding of your sin and stand up and walk away thinking, okay, that's done, I'm good, it's very difficult to love the way that we're called to love. But when you go to the cross understanding the depth of your sin, when you go to the cross with a broken heart, when you go to the foot of the cross and the tears are streaming down your face because of the offense that your life is to a holy God, when you go to the cross realizing the weight of the burden that you have carried and the love of Christ just overwhelms you, and it's not just an intellectual, theological moment, it is an experience where at the foot of the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ saves you. And you sense that, like Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, you sense that huge burden of your sin that would have damned you to hell eternally, falling away, and the joy filling your soul that you are a forgiven, loved child of God, and the tears begin to move from tears of regret and guilt and shame to tears of joy and rejoicing. You get up from that moment because of the theology, but in, in relationship with Jesus, impacted by what he has done for you, transformed in that moment, the gospel has done its work. And when you know how much you are forgiven for, it's so much easier to love others, isn't it? When you understand the great debt that God has forgiven you in Christ. It's so much easier to forgive others who slight you and wrong you and hurt you and do mean things. You see, it's, it's, it, it requires us to come to the cross as whole people because we live in the church as whole people. 
emotional people, broken people, wounded people. And we need that experience. That's why the old preachers used to say, folks, before you come to Calvary, go to Sinai. The law's got to do its work in our hearts. It's got to break us. It's got to crush us. It's got to do its work so that we understand and appreciate and value the enormity of our forgiveness. Because until we know how much we are forgiven, we can't love the way that we need to love in the church. It's hard to love people in the church. It's hard to be forbearing. It's hard to be forgiving. It's hard to not allow that root of bitterness to grow up within our souls. It's hard to serve. It's hard to love. It's hard to edify. It's hard to bless. And the only way that we're going to be ever able to do it is if we start every day at the foot of the cross and thank him for what he has done for us, understand the depth of our sin, what he has done for us in Christ, and get up and go and do it for other people. So I want to say this, that there is no, because of the mystery, because Jew and Gentile coming together, there is no offense that cannot be reconciled, no offense that cannot be forgiven, no estrangement that cannot be bridged, no hurt that cannot be healed through the gospel of peace. So to be the church that we must be, that God has called us to be, we've got to go back to the cross. And let our salvation be not simply a theological construct, but let it be an emotional reality that God causes us to remember every single day. And let it be that which motivates us as we understand how much we've been forgiven. Let that that be the thing that motivates us to go out and love one another. Paul became genuinely humble. I'm not going to talk too much about this, but if you look at the next verse, verse 7, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Look how many times he uses the word gift and the given and grace. He talks about gift once. He talks about it was given him twice. And he talks about grace twice. Five references where we just see the fact that he understood that everything that he was, everything that he was, was a gift of God's grace. And then he says, I am the least of all of you. I am the least of all of you. Paul was a profoundly humble man, despite the fact that he was an incredibly proud man before Jesus met him. Despite the fact that he was self-made and he boasted in who he was, he at this point in his journey was a profoundly humble man. Despite the fact that he was one of the greatest minds in all of human history, that he was chosen specifically to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles, Despite the fact that he was the greatest missionary and church planter that the world has ever seen, despite the fact that he was the greatest theologian that the world has ever seen, despite all of that, this man was profoundly humble. Why? Because he knew that everything that he was and everything that he had was a gift of God. It was a gift of God's grace. At the beginning of his journey, he tells the Corinthians, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Well, that's pretty humble. Then he says in this situation here, I'm the least of all the saints, at the end of his life, writing 1 Timothy, says, Timothy, he says, I am the chief of sinners. Like Paul was on a trajectory in his life, and it was a trajectory into humility. And folks, it's humility that lubricates relationships in the church. Without it, we simply will not survive. 
Proud people ruin churches. Proud churches cease to exist because God just removes his hand of blessings from them. Paul was demonstrating in this situation, he's talking about how God intersected him, how God saved him, how God gave him grace, how God made him a preacher, how God worked in his life. He's talking about what God had done and the humility in, in, in an attitude of profound humility. Behind every unresolved conflict, every outburst of anger, every attitude of unforgiveness and bitterness, behind all of the issues that cause relational damage in the church, there is one thing, and it's pride. And that's why God says to us, humble yourselves. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us at the proper time. God wants to use us as he used the apostle Paul but he doesn't use proud people. Proud people gum up the church because it's all about them, not about the body. Paul was a humble man. God used him in mighty ways to serve and bless the church. How do we prefer one another in love? How in the world can we possibly ever consider one another as more important than ourselves? That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He says, have the mind in you which is also in Christ Jesus. That's the foundation. Think the way Jesus thought. Jesus was profoundly humble. He left heaven and he became a man. He humbled himself further to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So therefore, you, Christians, have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Consider one another as more important than yourselves. How in the world can we do that? The only way we can do that is if we choose humility. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. It's not something we get around to eventually. It's something we do now. It's something we put on every day. We put on humility. It's an attitude to to be deferential. It's an attitude to put others first. It's an attitude to choose not to take offense. It's an attitude that says, I'm going to be second. Go ahead. It's an attitude that says, don't honor me. I'm I'm nothing special. It's an attitude that says, I want to reflect all the glory back to Jesus. And that's who Paul was. And that's what makes churches great. Filled with men and women who are genuinely humble, who understand that all that we are, all that we have, everything that we are, is a gift of God's unmerited, undeserved grace in our lives. And he's given it to us for you. He's given it to me for you. He's given it to you for me. Thirdly, he became a, fourthly, I'm sorry, he became a very optimistic man. Now, the word optimism isn't used in these verses, but I want to read it for you and tell you why I landed on that word. Look at verse 9. To bring to light for everyone, this is, so this is God's plan. To bring to light for everyone, one is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So God made Paul who he was in order to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden by God who created all things. So what is, what is Paul saying there? Because it's kind of a convoluted and, and, and sort of difficult verse to understand. Basically what he is saying is this. God has saved me to preach the gospel. 
and that through preaching the gospel and the ministry of the church, we are going to bring to light for everyone, for everyone, the mystery hidden for ages by God. In other words, we are going to bring the church to light. We're going to reveal to everyone, everywhere, this thing that God has done called the church where he brings people from all kinds of cultural and linguistic and ethnic backgrounds together, where all kinds of things that would normally keep us apart are surmounted, and people just pour into this thing, and there's a unity and love around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He says, that's why God has called me to preach the gospel. Again, it happens through the ministry of the gospel. It's the gospel that accomplishes the mystery. And Paul says that God has called us to, to, to show this mystery to the world. And so as I said a few minutes ago, after the resurrection, churches began to pop up all over the Mediterranean Roman world. And it's just shocking and amazing that it happened. Jew and Gentiles together in Philippi and Laodicea and Caesarea and Hierapolis and in Rome and like all over the world, these people were coming together around the person of Christ. All of the things that should cause them to stay apart were, were just sort of forgotten as being unimportant. The gospel pulling them together, the gospel of peace. And Paul says, our job is to take this this, this mystery, the church, and reveal it to the world, to, to just share it with the world. They say, missiologists tell us, that by the end of the first century, one out of every 365-ish people on the planet were followers of Jesus Christ, spirit-filled followers of Jesus Christ. Today, they tell us about one in every 10 people on the planet are spirit-filled followers of Jesus Christ. So what Paul said he was about, God has continued to do. And that's why he puts that little phrase in there about, where is it now? Uh, where does it say it? About, the, about God who created all things. The God who created all things. You see that in, in, verse, um, in verse nine? He throws that in there but just simply to say this. The God who spoke the world into existence, the person of Jesus Christ, John chapter one, he spoke the world into existence. Do you think it's a hard thing for him to speak churches into existence? To, to fill the world with these mobile, God-glorifying temples that speak about the, the, the spilled blood of Jesus and tell people that now this is the way to be reconciled to the Father. Do you think it's a big deal for the God who spoke the world into existence, that hung this universe in space? Do you think it's a big deal for this creator God to build the church? Of course not. That's why Jesus said, I will build my church and hell can't stop me. And he's been doing it for 2,000 years. I have preached in churches all over this world. I've preached in little grass churches in, in, in Congo and in Gabon. Where, where I had to speak in English because it's the only language I know because I'm a doofus, <laughs> sadly. And there was a missionary standing beside me who translated it from, from, I spoke, he translated it into French and then somebody beside him who was translating it into lingua, lingua, lingala is the language. Can't even say it. And in that little hut, there's 30 or 40 people who I, I can't relate to. I don't know them. They're dressed differently and their culture's radically different than me and everything about them is different, but we hug because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. 
You see, that's what, that's what the gospel does. And Paul says, this is God's plan to reveal for everyone this mystery, this beautiful thing that Jesus birthed in his death and resurrection. And it's happening all over the world today. In Asia and in, in Russia and Africa and all over the place. Today, thousands and thousands of people are going to hear the gospel in godly churches and they're going to get saved. And they're going to be changed. And the wor- their world, their village, their place, their home, their family, it's going to be transformed by the gospel. You see, that's why Paul was so enthusiastic, so optimistic, because our job is to take this mystery and reveal it to everyone in every time, in every place, and to keep on going until Jesus comes back. That's the first thing he says, but then he says something else that I just, I just love. He says that God has done this. God has manifest the, the mystery to everyone all over the world so that, you see that little verse, that little word there, beginning verse 10, so that through the church, through the mystery, the thing that nobody saw coming, which is us, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Who is he talking about? Well, flip over to chapter 6. And he describes these people in greater detail, or these, these forces in greater detail. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. That's who these rulers and authorities are. So God has established the church for everyone to see in order that in the church we might proclaim to these powers the truth, the manifold wisdom of God. And what is that? It's the gospel. And I love how Paul deals with these rulers and authorities. Look at, look at verse Look at verse 10 of that same passage, chapter 6. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Like these people, these, these forces people, these de- demonic forces, these spiritual forces, I don't know really much about it, but they are powerless against us. They don't have the authority anymore because Christ has won the victory. That's why Paul is able to say in Colossians, Chapter, chapter um, 2, verse 15, that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. You see, we don't have anything to stop us anymore. Jesus has established his church and our job in the church is to live in such a way as to give credibility to the gospel and then preach it powerfully because the darkness can't stop the light. 
That's the whole thing. Jesus has bound these guys. Jesus has thwarted their power. Jesus has limited their ability so that the gospel and the advance of the church cannot be stopped. The only thing that can stop us is us. The only thing that can stop us is us. I am convinced that when the church lives and behaves in a manner that Christ has designed for us to live and function, that we are going to be victorious in any context, in any place. We cannot be stopped as long as we live and behave the way Christ has called us to. And we need to be optimistic. I know things in our culture right now are not good and it seems like we're being, facing all kinds of opposition. I can take you, I was in Vietnam last year, I can take you, the Vietnamese church is growing like crazy. I did a preaching seminar with pastors who drove, some of them drove 15 hours in little tiny motorcycles to come and learn a little bit more about preaching God's word. And their churches are growing and people are getting saved. I was in Thailand, did the same thing. And God is building his church. Satan can't stop the church, but the church stops the church. Like Paul, I love what Paul says here. We don't fight against flesh and blood. Our battle is not with the government. Our battle is not with pornographers or the abortion industry or, or the people who are involved in the sex trade or, or the people who are involved in the gambling industry or drug dealers, etc. Remember, these people are enslaved. They are deceived. They're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that was at work in us, sons of disobedience before God saved us. That's not the enemy. They're deceived. The way that we're going to change the world, we can't legislate righteousness. We can't stand up and tell people to do the right thing because they love darkness rather than light. That's who we were before we were saved, right? How do we change the world? We live the way God has designed the church to live. This miracle, this mysterious miracle that we are. We love each other. We serve one another. We live in humility. We live optimistically. And we preach the gospel powerfully. And our testimony and our lives together reflect the truth of the gospel. And people are changed. And the drug dealers stop selling drugs and the people who are involved in the pornography industry get saved. And people who would have gotten abortion, they don't get abortion. They put that little treasure up for adoption or they keep it. We're called to change the world. But it's by the church being the church and the church preaching the gospel. I try to think of an illustration to describe what I'm trying to talk about here. And the only thing I can come up with is this. Think of yourself in a small boat out in the middle of the ocean. It might be a little intimidating, right? The ocean's not the enemy. The ocean's not the enemy. The person is the enemy. It's the guy at the back of the boat with the drill, drilling the hole through the boat, right? That boat, as long as it has integrity, has no fear of the ocean. God has put us in this huge ocean called the Niagara Peninsula. And we, we need fear nothing out there because he has given us everything. With, with all the integrity he has given to us, all the wisdom that he has given to us and the gospel that he has given to us, if we simply be the people that he has called us to be, nothing can thwart us. The only thing that can trouble us is somebody at the back of the boat drilling holes 
destroying the integrity of the thing in which God has placed us. Someday we won't need the boat because we'll be in heaven. But right now we need this boat. And we need it to be absolutely integral, strong, unified, healthy, loving. We need the bitterness gone. We need the anger gone. We need the resentment gone. We need the walls torn down. We need the hostility killed. If there are rela- if, in your marriage, if there's relationship problems, let's deal with it. In our church, if there are relational problems, if there's wounds, if there are hurts, let's deal with it. Let's be the church that God has called us to be. Because when we are, and we preach the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that salvation is free through the finished work of Calvary, the blood of Christ covers it all, that he is the, new, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If we just preach that and live lives in harmony with that message, the gospel of peace, a church at peace, God's going to do amazing things through us in this place and in this time. The last thing we see about the Apostle Paul is, this, he was, is that he was a praying man. He talks in the last two verses about how that we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Christ. Paul knew that if anything of any spiritual consequence was going to be accomplished, it would be accomplished through prayer. And that's all I'm going to say about that except to remind you that Wednesday night is prayer and praise. And on Wednesday night, we're going to come together and we're going to pray for those people that you're going to invite to Easter Sunday morning service. And I'm, I got half an hour, I'm going to preach the gospel three times and just tell people about the death and resurrection of Jesus and the fact that they can be saved. So we're going to pray about those people. We're going to pray that God welds our hearts together as a body of believers. We've been through tough times as a church. We're going to pray that God unifies our hearts, gives us a shared vision about going forward. We're going to pray that God brings the next leader into our church. We're going to pray that God raises up new elders to help these guys who have been carrying the load for such a long time. We're going to pray that God blesses our church because nothing of any spiritual consequence happens apart from prayer. So I want to encourage you to come on Wednesday night. Register and come, please. And let's pray. So let me close there and just pray with you and ask God's blessing on this. Father, I thank you for the mystery. It's all over the pages of the Old Testament, but nobody saw it. Nobody saw that you were going to incorporate Gentiles into the church through the gospel of peace and cause people who hated one another to begin to love and serve one another. Nobody saw that they would fight for unity. Nobody saw that they were going to uh, live in an extraordinary, extraordinarily humble way where they considered and preferred one another as more important than themselves. Nobody saw what you were going to do through the church, how you were going to spread her throughout the world, these little mobile temples filled with your Holy Spirit and your people. Nobody saw the work that you were going to do, how the nations are coming, Lord Jesus, how the light is still penetrating the darkness. Nobody could have foreseen it, and yet you did it. And we're here this morning as recipients of your grace. Lord, make us church men and women who love the church, who, like the Apostle Paul, having understood the mystery of Christ, are willing to give their lives for the body of believers of which you have made us a part, willing to serve and love and bless one another, to use our gifts in each other's lives, to edify one another and to encourage one another. 
God, build us into a unity. Tear down those walls that divide, I pray. Make us one, even as you, Father, are one with your Son and the Spirit. Do that in us, I pray, that the world might know that you are in our, in our midst, in our fellowship. So bless us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.